pardon me, technical difficulties, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we'll be reading verses 1 through 15, and considering heaven's hyssop. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 15, heaven's hyssop. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded in the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of bulls and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant, by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we stand at the posts of your doors waiting for you. You have told us that he who waits at the gates of your house looking to you will be blessed with life. So we pray now, O Lord, that you would bless us during this time and manifest to us eternal life through preaching according to your promise. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I have an old coat, and with the fall coming and the temperatures dropping, I've had occasion to pull this coat out of the closet. Uh, There's nothing particularly special about this coat. It's, It's not the nicest coat in the world. It's not the best-looking coat in the world, but this coat was given to me by my grandfather. And because it was my grandfather's coat, it's a very special coat to me. Now, as I said, there are much better-looking coats. There are more expensive coats. There are coats that will keep you warmer and drier than this coat. But because of who it belonged to and because of what it means to me, The coat is valuable to me, not because of its inherent worth. Likewise, in the covenant, both the old and the new covenants, God has ordained certain means to apply the blessings of the covenant to us. And the means that he has chosen to apply the blessing of the covenant in themselves are not very special. In the means that God has appointed, they're they're not the most impressive thing. They, They are not the most expensive thing. In fact, in many ways, the things that God has chosen 
to take the blessing of the covenant and apply it to your heart are some of the most foolish and despised things in the world. And what we're going to see in this passage, that even though God has ordained certain means, and that the means by themselves are nothing, because of God's power and promise, He blesses those means to take the blessings of the covenant and apply it to His people. Specifically, we're going to see this contrasted with the old and the new covenant. And what we're going to learn is that the earthly glory of the ordinances of the old covenant is replaced by the heavenly glory of the ordinances of the new covenant. I'll say it again. That's a bit wordy. The earthly glory of the ordinances of the old covenant is replaced by the heavenly glory of the ordinances of the new covenant. And there's really two parts to this passage. Verses 1 through 10 are the ordinances of the Old Covenant. Verses 11 through 15 are the ordinances of the New Covenant. 1 through 10, Old Covenant ordinances. 11 through 15, New Covenant ordinances. Now before we get into the details of our passage, we have to keep in mind the context here. And what the author is doing in this broader section of the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 8 and moving into chapter 9, is he is exalting the priestly ministry of Christ, both in the place where Christ ministers, heaven itself, and in the covenant promises that Christ is the mediator of. The promises of the new covenant are better than the old covenant. And what we're going to see here is now a comparison between Christ's ministry and the Old Covenant ministry, and the comparison is in the glory of these two ministries. There is a greater glory in the ministry of Christ, which we will come to presently. Again, something before we can get into this passage is we need to have a definition. And this is a very important definition for understanding the Scriptures and understanding how God works in your life. Ordinances are a very important term in God's covenant. An ordinance is God's appointed means for accomplishing His purposes among men. The means that are appointed by God indicate, pay careful attention, how God himself will work in your life. The things that God ordains tell us how he is going to work in your life. Ordinances work in our lives, not on the principle of merit. God's ordinances don't operate in your life because you do it the right way. God's ordinances work in your life by the power of His grace, fulfilling His promise. This is what the Westminster Confession means when it speaks about the means of grace. The means of grace are God's ordained and appointed ordinances by which He promises to work in your life. Some references to see this in the Westminster Standard. You can look at Westminster Larger Catechism 153, Westminster Shorter Catechism 85 and 88. Now, as I said, ordinances are very important. Understanding what they are is very important. But we need to learn a little bit more of their importance. As the Westminster Catechisms summarize it for us, especially in Shorter Catechism 85, it says, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse. The Catechism answers, God requires of us repentance unto life and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most of us stop there. Most of us stop with the first two. Repentance unto life and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they add a third. And the third thing that they add is the key to growing and persevering as a Christian. 
God requires of us repentance unto life, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and a diligent use of all the outward means whereby God communicates the merits of Christ to you. All three of those are required. Now remember what I said. These don't work because you do it the right way. These work because God has promised, and by his grace, he blesses what he ordains. This is an important idea to keep in mind as we begin to look through this passage, because you'll notice in verse 1, the author begins by saying, the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary. So the thing he's emphasizing in this passage are the things that God had appointed under the first covenant, and he's going to contrast that with the new covenant. Notice that in this earthly sanctuary, there was an outer court. He mentions this in verse 2. The tabernacle was prepared, the first part, there was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Hopefully you're familiar with some of the architecture of Moses' tabernacle. There was the outer court, and then within the tent itself, there was the uh, holy place, which was kind of the foyer, if we can put it that way, of God's special presence. Within that holy place, sanctuary, you had the table, the lamp, and the showbread. There's a lot of things that these items can symbolize, but I just want you to maybe keep in mind here the ordinary nature of these things. Light, bread, and a table. Some of the basics of everyday life. Food, fellowship, and knowledge. So there was the outer sanctuary, then there's the inner sanctuary. Notice how the author moves through in verse 3. Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. And notice that in the holiest of all, everything is dripping with gold. There is the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid with gold, the golden pot, the cherubim of glory upon the mercy seat. Within the Holy of Holies, it is glorious within. But notice, it's an earthly glory. It's an outward glory that you could see with your eyes. Gold, cherubim, mercy seat, the three items that were put in the covenant, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. The Holy of Holies represents the glory of God. The outer room is kind of Israel's relationship to God. The inner room is the special glory of God manifested in the covenant. Interesting, the three items that are mentioned that are in the ark. The golden pot, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Whatever those, things, whatever those three things represent, we know that at one level they represent fundamentally God's presence with his people. Christ said, I am the manna. Aaron's rod that budded was a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. The, table, the, the tables of the covenant was God's voice speaking on Mount Sinai and deposited in the Ark of the Covenant. So in all of these things, the Holy of Holies represents God's glory and his presence with his people. Not only is there this earthly sanctuary, there is also a worship service, or there was a, there was a way in which the people worshipped God. Starting in verse 6, we see how this divine worship operated under the first covenant. Now, when these things had been prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Notice in the outer sanctuary, there's constant daily activity. If you go back and read the books of Moses, you'll hear them speaking about trimming the lamps, replacing the showbread every Sabbath cycle. There's daily activity in the outer court or in the outer sanctuary. But, verse 7, in the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. Notice, first off, there's only annual activity in the Holy of Holies. The high priest only enters once a year. Notice how he enters. The high priest went in once a year, not without blood, which was offered for his sins and the sins of the people. Notice he characterizes these sins as sins of ignorance. 
Sins of ignorance are sins that are committed even though the sinner does not realize he is sinning. Sins of ignorance are sins that we just commit as a matter of course. We didn't realize it was sinful, but because of God's absolute holiness, they are sinful. We need to learn a practical lesson from this when he speaks about the sins of ignorance. Our sinfulness is not measured by our knowledge. We are not sinful to the degree that we know we are sinful. We are sinful to the degree that God is holy and we don't measure up. That's why there are sins of ignorance. Because he is so holy and we are so unholy that even in the first covenant they needed blood to atone for this. These sins of ignorance, it's often used, this is often the way that the Gentiles or those that do not know God are described. Acts 17.30, Paul's preaching to the Greeks and says, God is overlooking these times of ignorance. Ephesians 4.18, Paul says, the Gentiles give themselves over to sensuality because of the ignorance that is in them. And our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, when he was dying, prayed for forgiveness because the people were ignorant. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And so this blood is brought in. It's offered once a year to atone for the people in the Holy of Holies. The last thing we need to see from this, there is the sanctuary, there is the worship, but there's also a lesson from the worship. That's where the author moves next in verse 8. Look at what he says. In verse 8 it says, The Holy Spirit was teaching the people the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest. The Holy Spirit is teaching by the way the first covenant's worship was arranged. That redemption had not been fully accomplished. That redemption had not been fully applied. The goal of redemption is not earthly blessings. The goal of God's covenant is not to bless you in this life necessarily. The goal of redemption is to reconcile you fully to God. God's purposes in the gospel is not for you to have your best life now. God's purposes in the gospel is so that you, as you go through this life and look forward to heaven forever, are fully reconciled to your God. That is the goal of redemption. And the Holy Spirit was teaching the people this hasn't been accomplished yet. The way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest. This furthermore teaches that in the Old Covenant, the ordinances of the Old Covenant, the whole point of them was to teach this lesson. The whole purpose of the tabernacle system, the rigorous sacrifices, the ceremonial washings, the the anointing and ordaining of the Aaronic priesthood, The whole point of that whole system was to teach the people, you are not worthy. Access has not been granted. The purpose of the first covenant was never to provide a way of salvation by itself. It teaches the way of salvation. It shows Christ who will come, but in itself it was never meant to remain. It was never meant to be the final word. Notice also, as the author goes on in verse 9, he he explains more pointedly why the first covenant, uh, why the first covenant was inadequate. He goes on and says it was symbolic for the present time, meaning the time that it was in force, the time of the Old Testament. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, notice carefully, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Verse 10, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. The ordinances of the first covenant could not make anyone perfect 
according to the conscience. The reason for this is explained in verse 10. The ordinances of the old covenant were concerned with outward washing, outward cleansing. The water and the blood and all of the different elements of the worship were applied outwardly to the body. But being applied outwardly to the body does not reach the conscience. An earthly ministry, an earthly form of worship can never make the conscience perfect. Now you notice that the high priest goes in with blood. And as we're going to learn later in this chapter, without the shedding of blood, there is no redemption. One of the key things that happened in the first covenant was that as the blood was shed, the high priest would bring it into the holy place, perform the service in the holy place, and then he would come out. And what the people needed in order for them to be cleansed, they needed the blood applied to themselves. You see, the blood doesn't profit you if it's never applied to you. There are several examples of the blood being applied in the first covenant by means of hyssop. Consider a couple of examples. In the Passover, Exodus 12, 22, judgment is coming upon the Egyptians. The Lord tells his people, I will save you through this means, the blood of a lamb applied to your doorposts with hyssop. The blood was shed and held in a basin. They would take a branch of hyssop and dip it into the blood and paint their doorposts with the blood. Secondly, in the cleansing of a leper, Leviticus 14, 4. The the cleansing of the leper involved the sacrificing of a bird. The blood of that bird was held in a basin mixed with other elements. And then that mixture was uh, applied to the leper by means of hyssop. Hyssop was dipped in and then it was sprinkled on the leper. There was more involved in that ceremony, but at least there's that. Finally, the water of purification in Numbers 19.18. Numbers 19.18, there was a water that was prepared to purify people from their daily uncleanness. They would take a heifer, burn that heifer, and then the ashes of that heifer were mixed in with water. That water then was applied with a branch of hyssop. And so... Verse 10, all of these outward fleshly washings and ordinances. You had to have the blood or the water, and it had to be applied in the right way. Throughout the Old Covenant, the way that this water or blood was applied was with a branch of hyssop. Now, hyssop, you may not realize, is nothing special. Solomon wrote in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 33, I believe it is, uh, the author is writing about Solomon's great wisdom. And it said that Solomon understood all plants from the cedars of Lebanon, the most glorious and exalted tree in the Middle East of that time, all the way down to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. Hyssop was a weed that was usually a nuisance because it sprang out of your wall. Some of you may have retaining walls at your house, and you know that you want this wall to be free of all plants, because if the plant starts growing, the roots start undermining the wall. Hyssop was one of those plants that sprang out of the wall. In itself, it was nothing special. In itself, it had no worth, value, uh, or or, uh, anything that would commend it to the eyes of man. But God ordained to use hyssop, the humblest of all plants as the means by which the blood of the covenant was applied to his people under the first covenant. There are great blessings that God promises to his people. There is also an ordained way that those blessings are given to his people. In the old covenant, the blessing of the covenant was sought from the hands of the priest. In the blood of bulls and goats, this blood was applied by means of hyssop according to the various ceremonies of the law. This now is why David prays in Psalm 51 verse 7, purge me with hyssop. Cleanse me. When he's confessing his sins and he's crying out to God, you purge me with the appointed means. Use hyssop to cleanse me because I am unclean through my sins. 
Very interesting in Psalm 51. David is praying to God as a high priest. Only the priest could use the hyssop. But David prays to God, you use the hyssop. And so he's looking to God as his high priest through the appointed means to purge me of my sins and cleanse me. You keep reading Psalm 51 so that David can then go worship the Lord. Well, these were the ordinances of the Old Covenant. There are ordinances likewise in the New Covenant. The same principle still applies. The blood of Christ does not profit you if it's never applied to you. The blood of Christ is the greatest blessing of God's covenant with man, and there is an ordained means that he has set up to apply that blood not to your body, but to your conscience. But first, we have to understand this new covenant a little bit better. Notice that Christ does not minister in an earthly sanctuary. Christ ministers in the heavenly sanctuary. Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. This heavenly sanctuary, it's not marked by earthly glory. Remember the first tabernacle. It's got gold and angels, the mercy seat, the table, the showbread, the lamp. All of this outward, visible, earthly glory. That's not where Christ ministers. Christ ministers in heaven. And the sanctuary that he ministers in is marked by heavenly glory, not by earthly glory. What is heavenly glory? Heavenly glory is not something you can see. Heavenly glory is not something you can behold with your eyes. Heavenly glory is not something that you can imagine. It's not something that you can make up in your own mind. Heavenly glory is an irresistible glory. The glory of heaven is the power of the gospel to change men. That is the glory of heaven. In a word, when we speak of heavenly glory, we are speaking of the power to transform the soul, to perfect the conscience. That is the glory of Christ's ministry. It is not an outward glory. It's a spiritual glory that produces an effect upon the soul. The Westminster Confession speaks about this in chapter 7, paragraph 6. It compares the Old and New Covenants, and it says that under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Listen carefully. Which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, in them is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy. That's the glory of heaven. Fullness, assurance, and spiritual efficacy. Christ is the minister of this sanctuary. The glory of heaven is something that transforms the soul. It is not something that dazzles the eyes. It is not something that we see with our eyes and that can impress us in this way. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18, again, contrasting old and new covenants, Moses with the ministry of Christ. And he says at the end of this uh, little section in verse 18, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Notice he's speaking metaphorically there. He's using the metaphors of the old covenant to describe the reality of the new covenant. We behold the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is the heavenly ministry. That the glory of God shines upon souls and actually 
transforms them. Well, we have a heavenly sanctuary. There's also heavenly worship. Look at what the author now goes to speak about in Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, Christ has, uh, he ministers in the heavenly sanctuary. Then in verse 12, Hebrews 9, 12, he says that Christ has entered not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Notice a few things from this. One, Christ goes in and never comes out. The high priest had to go in and come out. And as the Holy Spirit tells us at the early part of this chapter, because the high priest was going in and out, that means redemption has not been finished. Christ goes in and never comes out. Redemption has been accomplished. Notice also that the means of that redemption is the blood of the Son of God himself. It's not the blood of bulls and goats. It's not the blood of another. See, the priests of Aaron sacrificed animals and offered the blood of another. Christ, as our high priest, takes on a human nature and offers up his own blood to redeem his people. And this Christ has entered, having obtained eternal redemption. This is the source of the gospel's power, that Christ is in heaven. That is why the gospel produces its effect in our lives. It's not because of anything we do. It's not because of any outward glory or wisdom that we have. It's because Christ has overcome. And he now rules in heaven as our high priest, pleading his own blood on behalf of his people. It is according to divine wisdom that this heavenly glory and spiritual power changes the heart. The author is going to go on and, and make this explicit in verse 13. He said, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, that's a reference to Numbers 19, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice he contrasts the blood of bulls with the blood of Christ. Notice the language that he uses in verse 13. The blood of bulls and clothes, it, it sprinkles and cleanses the unclean. It sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh. The word unclean is often used to describe leprosy in the Old Testament. The leper was one that was unclean because of the disease in his flesh. There were various other ways that you could become unclean. Simply, being unclean means that you are unholy. You are not fit to commune with God. God is holier than you. You are unclean. You must stay away. He also uses the word of uh, purify or sanctify. This is a word that simply means to make holy, to render us fit for communion with God. And notice finally, once again, that in verse 13, it's an outward cleansing. It only purifies the flesh. It cannot reach the conscience. He then says, how much more can the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience? You notice a reference to the Trinity there. Christ offered the blood by the Spirit to God the Father. And then he says, will not this blood cleanse your conscience? You know, the word cleanse he uses here is the very common word for purging the leper and sanctifying the unclean. You know that in the Old Testament, Leviticus 13, 45, turn there, Leviticus 13, 45 through 46 Leviticus 13, 45 through 46, the priest goes and inspects the leper. And when the priest determines that he is unclean, this is what the leper had to do. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn, 
and his head bare. He shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean, he shall be unclean. All the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Isn't this what a guilty conscience is like? When your conscience is pricked by the word of God and your sins are brought up before your face, isn't this what our conscience does to us? Our conscience, when it's guilty and terrified of the wrath of God, follows us throughout of our days, crying out, unclean, unclean. I'm unworthy to be in God's presence. My dwelling place is outside of the camp. Notice also it says that he covers his mustache. This was a sign of shame in this society. So not only are we covered with guilt, not only does our conscience cry out in our hearts, but we're covered with shame because of our sins. This guilty conscience is really what prevents us from worshiping God. Because as long as your conscience remains unclean, as long as your sins are not atoned for, you cannot enter God's presence. Because as long as our conscience is guilty, the holiness of God will terrify us. The holiness of God will drive us away from His presence. The holiness of God is the last thing that we want to experience. But once the conscience is cleansed, the holiness of God is the only thing we desire. Once our conscience is purified, then the worship of God becomes the, the, the joy of our lives and the hope of heaven. It is your guilty conscience that keeps you not only from worshiping God publicly, but from communing with God privately and in your families. You know, the book of Isaiah writes, that, in Isaiah the prophet writes, he says that the, Lord is, the Lord's arm is not shortened. He has not hidden his face from you. But your sins have separated you from God. Your sins are what hides his face from you. Your guilty conscience keeps you out of the Holy of Holies. And so in Hebrews chapter 9, the, the author says, How much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15, he then concludes the, the meaning here. He says, And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant for the redemption of transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And now in verse 15, we learn what is heaven's hyssop. How is it that God has ordained the blood of Christ, which is offered in heaven, to be applied to your consciences? How does he make the connection? How does he bring the power of the blood to bear in your life? One comment before I answer that question. The glory of heaven is the power to transform. The thing that we need is the power of Christ to save us. What this means is that we do not need the literal blood. Often in the New Testament, often you'll hear preachers speak about uh, uh, like in the sacraments, we uh, eat the bread and drink the wine. The bread represents the body, the wine represents the blood. Christ said in John chapter 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. When people got offended, Christ then said, what I'm speaking to you are spiritual words. They're not carnal words. I'm not talking about literal blood. I'm talking about the spiritual power of the blood. That is what needs to be applied to your hearts and lives. Verse 15, the author gives us a clue. Notice he says that this blessing of the new covenant, the power of the blood to cleanse the consciences, and those who receive the promise of the eternal inheritance are those who are called. Notice at the end of verse 15, those who are called receive all of these blessings. 
God's call comes through one ordained means. And it is, in our day, the hyssop of heaven. There is an ordinance that God has established in his church, which in itself has no glory, which in itself has nothing to commend itself. But because of God's promise and the power that he promises to display, this is the hyssop that the high priest uses to purge you. This is the ordinance of preaching. Preaching under the new covenant is the means by which the power of the blood is applied to your consciences. Several scriptures to consider. Titus chapter 1 verse 3. Paul says that I am an apostle according to the promise of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began and has now manifested through preaching. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 17 and 18. Paul writes about the work of Christ on the cross, and it says that Christ, having died on the cross, has removed the enmity, and having removed the enmity, he came and preached. Ephesians 3.8, Paul speaks about his own ministry, that he was blessed to preach the riches of Christ. Ephesians 4 verse 11, the exalted Christ give gifts unto his church, and all of the gifts that he gives are preaching offices. Galatians chapter 3 verse 2, Paul is speaking to the, turn to Galatians 3. This is one of the most vivid verses that shows this connection. Galatians 3 verses 1 and 2, Paul is writing to the Galatian church and he's worried that they're going to depart from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's worried that they're going to start believing a different gospel. In Galatians 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Notice carefully, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Remember, it is not a literal picture of Christ's crucifixion. It is the spiritual power of Christ's crucifixion that Paul is speaking about. How was Christ displayed before your very eyes? Verse 2. This only I want to learn. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Christ is displayed before your very eyes through the ordinance of preaching. This is the hyssop of heaven that God has ordained to bless you through this ordinance. One final passage, because brothers and sisters, this is so critical for your spiritual growth. Repentance, faith, diligent use of the means of grace. 1 Corinthians 1.17 Paul is dealing with a rebellious church. And this church... Uh, Paul comes to them and tells them, look, when I came to you, I didn't come on my own authority. I didn't come preaching myself. I didn't come proclaiming my gifts. I'm just a weed that springs out of the wall. I'm an old dusty coat that an old man gave to his grandson. Verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Again, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Brothers and sisters, preaching is the means by which God blesses you with the blood of Christ. That is the hyssop of heaven. That is how God is going to cleanse your consciences through the word preached. How often do we not see this, though? Notice what Paul says in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 2. How often is, is the pulpit a place for men to display their wisdom? 
How often is the pulpit a place for men to display their credentials, to display their glory? How often do we find preachers, as Paul will say later on in the second letter, we do not preach ourselves, but we preach the Lord Jesus Christ and us, his ministers, for your sake. How often are Christian pulpits a place where men exalt themselves and consciences continue in bondage? Consciences continue unclean. The spiritual lepers fill the land, crying out, unclean, unclean. Because preaching has fallen by the wayside. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if we don't live in the days of Amos. Remember what Amos prophesied. I will send a famine, not of bread and not of rain, but of hearing the words of God. I wonder if we were in we are in those days. The Westminster uh, standards reflect this emphasis in Westminster Larger Catechism, one fifty five. Westminster Larger Catechism one fifty five. I, I won't read the whole thing. It's very good for you to meditate on this afternoon. How is the Word of God made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading but especially the preaching of the Word of God and effectual means. And then it talks about the effects. There's one very practical thing for you to take away from this. Pray for preaching. Pray to God that He would bless your preacher and all preachers, and that he would raise up more preachers. Because this is the means that God has ordained to save men's souls. Paul writes in Romans 10, how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed, and how will they believe without a preacher? So pray for preaching. Secondly, be careful that you do not make preaching ineffectual in your own life. There is a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of preachers. There is a lot of responsibility on ministers of the gospel. We shall give an account one day for how we've conducted ourselves. But there's also responsibility on the shoulders of a congregation. There's also a duty on your part to diligently use the means of grace. Larger Catechism 160 says this, What is required of those that hear the word preached? It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the Scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind. As the Word of God, meditate and confer of it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. There's two ways, I think, primarily, brothers and sisters, that we render preaching ineffective in our lives. The first is having carnal ideas about preaching. You remember in the first covenant, it was all outward washings. Washing the body, washing the clothes, washing the house. It was all outward. The author in Hebrews 9 calls this fleshly ordinances. What he means by fleshly is outward I think sometimes we have carnal ideas of preaching, meaning we think it's enough to show up at church. We we think it's enough to sit under the sound of preaching and that it's enough to hear it and have been present. Remember, the, the blessing of the new covenant is not that you outwardly hear the word of God, but it's that inwardly the blood of Christ cleanses your conscience. It transforms you. Secondly, another way that we render preaching ineffective in our lives is by overly critical reception of preaching. Remember, hyssop is a weed. It's despised in and of itself. Paul will write later on in 1 Corinthians, preaching is foolishness. There's nothing in a preacher that makes him commendable. There's nothing in the act of preaching that makes it glorious. God has been pleased to appoint this means, and one of the ways you can cut off the blessing is by focusing too much and too critically on the hyssop that God 
has ordained. What, we, what you need to do when you look at preaching, don't consider it the work of the preacher. Consider it the work of the high priest. Remember that under Aaron's ministry, he had the bowl of blood, and he would take the hyssop and dip it in the blood and then sprinkle the people with it. Likewise, in the new covenant, there is a basin with the blood of Christ, and Christ the high priest, as it were, takes his minister and dips his soul in the blood, and then through the act of preaching, he sprinkles the people with that blood through the means he has appointed. And so when you see preaching, don't see preaching. See the Lord Jesus Christ sprinkling you as your high priest and giving you the blessings of the covenant. And I guarantee you, God will bless you and God will grow you as you receive this means. The glory of the new covenant is the greater spiritual efficacy. This power, the application of the blood of Christ is accomplished through God's ordained means to that end. Like the humble hyssop plant which pales in outward glory when compared to the cedars of Lebanon. Preaching from the soul of a sinner who has himself been transformed by the glory of heaven is the primary means of heaven for saving your soul. Embrace it. Feed upon it. Be transformed by it. And you will see the glory of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you for his greater sacrifice. We thank you that you've appointed all the means necessary for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of him. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to profit from your means. We confess, O Lord, that we are carnal. We are often content and complacent with our lives and we often learn how to cope with our spiritual uncleanness. We pray, O Lord, that you would wash us by the blood of Christ and that you would make us fit for your eternal glory. We ask you to do all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.